Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Academic Life. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by Lee Wind, who is the author of No Way They Were Gay. Welcome to the show, Lee. Hi. Thank you so much, Christina. I'm really delighted to be here. I am so glad you're here and for all of the things we're going to talk about, including this book. Before we jump into all of that, will you please tell us about yourself? Absolutely. Um, I am wearing a purple shirt. Wait, it's it's audio, but you know, <laughs> um, I am an author. I am fascinated by history, which I find incredibly ironic because when I was a kid learning history in school, I could not have been less engaged. It was just names and dates and things to memorize. And there was no reflection of anybody like me. I'm gay. Um, There was never anybody gay that we studied in history. Um, My parents are immigrants. You know, there was never anybody Jewish in, in the history that I studied. It just was completely unengaging. And then as an adult, as we'll talk about, I sort of discovered that there were reflections of me in history and it totally blew my mind. And the fact that I ended up publishing a history book, if you had told me, me my, my childhood self that, I would have totally laughed in your face. I would have been like, that is impossible. But, you know, here it is. I actually wrote a book about history because it is amazing and fascinating. And what's really cool is that it wasn't just a liberation for me. I think, like, if we... Um, if we unpack it, it's actually a liberation for everyone that the history we were taught is not really what happened. It's too simple. <laughs> right. The version of history they teach is this, is this false facade, right? It's, it's like the stories of rich, white, straight, cis, able-bodied men from Europe. Uh, and that's like, that's American history, but that's not American history. There were so, that's not even world history. Like there were so many people, like so many women, so many disabled people, so many indigenous people, so many men who love men and women who loved women and people who love without regard to gender and people who lived outside the gender binary. Like there were so many more people that were important in history and that we should know about. And it's just that doesn't, those narratives aren't supporting the sort of power structure. So they've not been taught to us and it's left all of all of these other people out of history. And that I think is something that we can undo by kind of bypassing the hundreds of years of historians that have actively hidden the truth and going directly to the primary sources. And so when I, for me, it was like, let me write a book for young people, for like 11 year olds and up. Let me write a book that helps them break through that false facade and really get excited and empowered. And I think a lot of books are super prescriptive. They're like, this is everything you ever need to know about this topic. And that's not the kind of books I write. I really want to write the kind of books that get people excited and are sort of the beginning of their sort of own personal exploration of what they're excited about history. Often people write the book that they couldn't find that didn't exist or that they needed or that younger them was hungry for. It sounds like that's a lot of what inspired No Way They Were Gay. A hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. If I had a time machine, I could send this book back to my 11-year-old self. Um, I mean, you know, sorry about the space-time continuum, but yes, I would do it. (laughs) I wish I had a book like this in college. The book 
not only takes us through history and reintroduces us to a number of famous people, but it provides primary sources, and then it does what historians call decoding and mapping. It provides boxes in the side, in the margin, that add additional notes. It has arrows drawing connections between different passages. And as historians in archives and working with primary documents, that's what we do on our own notes. But by the time it gets published, those notes are all removed. And so people see the conclusion or the finished product, but they don't know how we arrived there. And you put the documents in there and you show that mapping and decoding that you did. Can you take us through that process? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I history always felt very stuffy to me. And I thought, well, well, it doesn't have to be presented in a sort of stuffy way. And, and I really wanted I wanted, a, I wanted a reader to be able to just open the book randomly, because that's how I generally read history books, or just flip through them, but to immediately see if something on the page was a primary source or if it was the historian or the person that wrote the book talking and, and about what happened. So um, all the primary sources are in bold. And then instead of footnotes at the bottom of the page, um, like you were saying, there's sort of explanatory text that in little sort of bubbles that have arrows drawn to explain terms or give context to stuff. Um, and I found that a much more, it's almost like pop-up video, if you remember MTV or VH1, how they had that sort of like the fun little facts about Madonna or whatever <laughs> during the song. It's, it's similar to that. It's like um, giving you the information you need when you need it, um, but also allowing you to, you know, read it through. I, I, it's almost like giving the reader more agency. I mean, that's really the, the idea behind it being 12 chapters. It also lets you shuffle through the history however you want. There's a really a fun page at the very end of the book. Um, it offers you a way to read the book in a different order, um, which would be more chronological. Uh, sort of mixing up the sort of men who love men, women who love women, and people who lived outside of the gender binary, um, and weaving in the other 12 sort of stories. So there are 12 in-depth chapters on people, and then there's sort of like 12 extra stories because I just couldn't resist. They were so incredible. Um, like things like Michelangelo's, um, you know, writing a love sonnet to another guy, um, which there's, you know, of course, in the in 60 years after Michelangelo died, they they were altered. So, um, you know, it, it was as if he wrote it to a woman, but then we've sort of gotten it reclaimed. But things like the Statue of David, um, there's a secret that he carved into the Statue of David, which I didn't know about. And then I, you, you, if you get up really close, and it's hard because I had the opportunity to go to Italy and, you know, the Statue of David, the feet are taller than my head and I'm six foot four. So it's quite hard to like get a close up look at his face. But if you look at how the eyes are carved, the, the pupils of the eyes are hearts, like this sort of like the romantic heart uh, that, and it just, that, that totally blew my mind because, you know, romantic love, like that's really fascinating to explore and to, to dig into. Um, and I guess I, I should back up for a second because the, the reason this whole thing started is because I'm gay and I didn't have 
I did thought I thought I was the only gay person on the, in like the history of the world. I was the only guy that like liked other guys ever, and uh, part of that was you know growing up and and not having any examples, any any positive uh, role models, and part of it was not seeing anybody in history books, and um, and so I was felt very unsafe to be honest about how I felt. So I was closeted from age 11 to 25 and like actively hiding who I was every single day. And that was really hard. And I dated women during high school and college and grad school. And I always sort of judged that it was the right thing to do. It's what my parents wanted. It's what society wanted, but I never actually felt what I knew I was supposed to feel because that's what all those love songs tell you you're supposed to feel. And um, about, I finally got honest around age 20, in my 20s, um, and, and with myself and with others. And then about 10 years later, I went to a talk, and this, uh, this historian was talking about the letters between Abraham Lincoln and Joshua Rice Speed that convinced him that Abraham was in love with Joshua. And I just was like, that can't possibly be true. I mean, I, I, I'm at that, at this point I've been out and gay for, you know, for 10 years. And I was like, I've never heard this. I mean, he's on Mount Rushmore. He's on the, he's on the penny. He's on the $5 bill. I've never heard this. How could this possibly, and that, but I just couldn't get it on my mind. So I went to the library and I got a book of, uh, of that included the letters that Abraham wrote Joshua. And as I said, I wasn't much of a history student. And I literally was like, I paged through the beginning. I'm like, boring, boring, boring. I don't care. So I just went to the back. And the whole back half of this book was an appendix that was reproductions of the letters. And um, I just randomly flipped to a page. And uh, there was this letter between where Abraham had written Joshua. They had lived together for four years. And then... um, Joshua moved back to Kentucky and married a woman named Fanny. And eight months after that marriage, Abraham is writing him this letter. And Abraham says, are you now in feeling as well as judgment? Glad that you're married as you are. And Christina, I got goosebumps. Like that was exactly how I felt when I was dating girls. Like I didn't, I judged it, but I didn't feel it. And I kept wondering, would the feeling come? And like there in that, in that sort of moment, I saw a reflection of me in history. And that got me started on like this deep, deep dive into all the primary sources and really trying to figure out like, well, what did I think? Did, did I think that Abraham was in love with Joshua and, and vice versa? And, and I think that we can go very CSI history in our culture, um, especially in America. We're obsessed with sex, but we are weird about it too. And um, I think that the question it ends up getting inverted and people are like, well, you know, can you prove that this person had intimate physical time with that person? And I I think that's actually the wrong question. I think it's much more interesting if they were in love with each other. And for that, we actually do have proof. We have the primary sources and it explains so much about Lincoln and his marriage to Mary. Um, And I just, I just got, it was the first crack in that false facade for me of, oh my gosh, there were men who loved men in history and they were some of the most important people in history too. And I was, I just got so excited. And I think at that moment it was like, oh, I was going to write a history book. (laughs) I think too, um, there's a book by, uh, 
Faderman called Surpassing the Love of Men. There's an, a number of books that I got a chance to do a shallow dive into in graduate school because queer theory is not my my main area, but it's really important, particularly when you do gender and women's history. And one of the interesting things that, that are raised in books like that is what do we mean by intimate physical contact? Because being alone with a person who truly sees you and loves you and sharing with them is incredibly intimate contact, whether it's consummated physically or not. Right. And I think that we get obsessed about, well, was it consummated physically? And I'm like, I, you know, I don't even really care. I'm, I, I mean, I think that that's for, that's for some other historians for, that are writing adult books for adults, maybe. Um, and I just, I'm much more fascinated by the, the, the love and yes, like you're saying, the, the romantic intimacy. Um, and I really feel like this even goes back to the word I mean, I'm a writer, forgive me, but like, I don't like the word homosexual. I think that it is not helping the queer community at all. And I think that if we, instead of focused on sex, we focused on love. And if the word was homolovable, we would be having very different cultural conversations. If we were talking about homolovable history and homolovable rights, um, because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the love that holds my family together, my husband and I, we've been together 26 years, our daughter is in college, um, you know, the love that holds our family together, it's the same love that holds everybody else's families together. And, um, and I just think that, you know, for people outside of the queer community, um, they hear homosexual and immediately makes them think about like, wow, those people have sex in a way that I'm uncomfortable with, maybe. Um, and you know, if you think about it, nobody wants to think even about their own parents having sex. So I certainly don't. Uh, so why, why are we saddling, you know, entire communities with this term that really, you know, takes them down, takes, takes us down to this very single thing that we don't have in common with, with the larger community. I think that, you know, if it was, homolovable and bilovable and panlovable, I think just it would be a lot better word. In the book, you invite us into conversation and into questions. Things we can just sit with not having the same shared answer, but having the same, same shared respect for the question and for the person. And you ask why this is upsetting to people on page 58, where you have a a picture of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Above it, it's called More of the Story. And you said, perhaps more than for anyone else profiled in this book, the suggestion that Abraham Lincoln was in love with another man seems to upset Americans the most, as if Abraham's place in history would be diminished if it were true, as if his being gay or bi would make him less great, as if just discussing this is an insult to his memory. Yeah, people get very hot under the collar about Lincoln in particular. And actually, the um, the story of this book actually getting published is is was quite the roller coaster. And originally, it had been sold to a imprint of Simon and Schuster, and um, uh, quite a while back. And um, we worked on it for. To, for a year, a little bit more than a year with that publisher. And, um, and then uh, our former president Trump was elected and the publisher freaked out and canceled the book. Um, 
And it was a really difficult and dark moment in my journey as an author. And really, they wouldn't come out and say why, but it was clear that the idea of publishing a book that said that Lincoln was in love with another man was just too scary for them. And um, they no longer wanted to have anything to do with the project, which was really, really sad. Um, and uh, it took quite a while to find another publisher brave enough to, to publish it. And I'm really proud of the team at Lerner. Um, uh, the imprint is Zest, uh, but it comes from Lerner Publishing Group, um, who did a beautiful job. And, and the people I've been working with there have really helped me make the book even better than it would have been. And it, the book is so beautifully designed. And as we said, it's like, it's, um, it's not, it's not history as medicine. It's almost like history, like chocolate, empowering chocolate. And, um, but yeah, just, I mean, that, I think it really does come down to this, like, we are obsessed with Abraham Lincoln in America. And the idea that the founder of the Republican party was a guy that was in love with another guy really, you know, shakes people because so much of what the, especially the Republican party has become in the last few years is, you know, it's, it's very homophobic and um, really would, it would sort of like shatter the, uh, the self view of, of so many people it was interesting when I found out the thing about Lincoln and speed, I originally immediately was like, you know, I want to write this as a novel for kids, uh, for teens. Um, so I actually wrote a novel called queer as a $5 bill because Lincoln's on the five. And there was a, a old timey expression when I was growing up um, outside Philadelphia, that when something was really weird, it was called queer as a $3 bill because America had never printed $3 bills. And um, so it was really basically a story of a 15-year-old who is inadvertently dating the girl who's his best friend. Um, he's closeted. Nobody knows that he is, is gay. And he's totally afraid to come out. And he is assigned a book report on Abraham Lincoln and uh, basically has the same sort of goosebump moment I did. He discovers the letter. He, he also judges, but doesn't feel what he's supposed to feel. And he decides that if he can out Abraham Lincoln and maybe it will change how everybody in the world feels about gay people and, you know, cue the rainbow and the happy ending. And what actually ends up happening in the course of the novel is that it just it does go viral, but um, it blows up in a big conservative backlash and media firestorm. And a lot of the book is about how he makes his way through. And um, as I was doing the research for the book, just so much evidence came up. And I didn't make up any of the history in the book. All the history in, in that novel is, is real. And interestingly enough, I ended up crowdfunding that book because I could not get a publisher to... Um, to, to take to take a chance on it. So um, I, I went to Kickstarter and I, I, I teamed up with a nonprofit called Brave Trails. And the idea was that if you um, if you donated money towards uh, making the project happen, then you were also you would get a copy of the book, but you would also be donating a copy of the book to an LGBTQ teen uh, because that was the idea that it's really like a way to empower young queer people and their allies, I guess. And, uh, and it ended up being very successful, the Kickstarter. Uh, we were aiming to raise enough money to give away 400 copies. We ended up giving away 910 copies. Um, and uh, we did an audiobook uh, that, you know, and, and 
that was really, really beautiful. And, um, and then, but in the course of creating the novel, there was just so much evidence that I couldn't shove it all into the novel. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe, maybe there's a nonfiction book too. But I, again, I didn't want to do a nonfiction book that was just about Lincoln and speed. That didn't even sound interesting to me. So I thought, well, let me, what if it's one chapter? What if it's, what if the, the nonfiction book is not about Lincoln? What if the nonfiction book is about this tearing down this false facade of history? And Lincoln is one of the examples uh, of how the history has been hidden and how we can reclaim the history by going back to the primary sources. Um, and so that's that's what it ended up being. And Abraham Lincoln is proudly on the cover of No Way They Were Gay. Or at least I have him proudly on the cover. I don't know if he would be proud to be on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> and you have other figures on the cover as well. And one of them is Eleanor Roosevelt and her story is in the book as well. Do you want to share a bit about that? Absolutely. So, yeah, I was really, Eleanor Roosevelt was an amazing, amazing human being. And um, she really transformed what we all think of as the, what a first lady does. Um, prior to Eleanor, it was really like uh, the, being a first lady was like a hostess. Um, but Eleanor really viewed the opportunity very differently. And a lot of that was at the uh, enthusiastic uh, guidance or, or, or teamwork with the woman that she was in love with, Lorena Hickok, who was, I believe, the first woman reporter to have a byline on the front page of the New York Times. So Lorena was actually assigned to cover Eleanor for um, the news services. And that's how they, the two of them met. And they started basically a decades-long relationship that was clearly love. There was clearly a lot of intimacy in the relationship. And after Eleanor died, a, a lot of their letters were burned um, by a, a friend and, and Ele one of Eleanor's daughters. And it was interesting because they published, um, uh, there's a beautiful book for adults called Empty Without You by um, Roger Straitmatter. Uh, and he, uh, the intimate letters of Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok. And he talks about, um, there's so much correspondence between these two women um, that there, there's actually like some debate about actually how much, because like it's, it's like over 12,000 pages, if I'm recalling correctly. And, but some of the letters are so revealing as to, um, how how much they cared for each other how how it really was not this sort of like and and how they got away with it too right like it because because of of who she was and the sort of public perception of being first lady and you know she was married to fdr but fdr had his own personal relationship uh with another woman so um you know, at one point, Lorena gave her a ring and Eleanor wrote it. And there's a, I have these fun pull quotes at the beginning of every chapter. And um, Eleanor, right after she moved into the White House, um, writes Lorena and says, your ring is a great comfort. I look at it and think she does love me or I wouldn't be wearing it. And, you know, and people are like, well, you're, you know, you're misinterpreting it. Um, and yet, you know, you look at the letters and some of them are like, 
you know, they're missing each other and they're counting the days until they see each other again. And there is this one uh, beautiful line where um, they're, Lorena is saying, you know, how much she misses uh, Eleanor. Uh, and there's this beautiful line about, um, most clearly I remember your eyes with a kind of teasing smile in them and the feeling of that soft spot just northeast of the corner of your mouth against my lips. <laughs> that sounds pretty romantic love to me. <laughs> and, um, and at one point, actually, one of uh, the daughters uh, is getting divorced or get, basically is, is having an affair with, with a man that is not her, her husband. And um, they're talking about, uh, Eleanor writes Lorena, you know, how lucky you are not a man which sort of is is a nod to the fact that they're able to sort of like go under the radar of the press for their relationship um, because of being two women and because of, you know, sort of like the polite society interpretation of their just being friends. Uh, but it's it's quite beautiful. and um, and And really reading the letters, it just gets you into this incredible place where you're seeing the intimacy between these these two women and the love that they shared and how they supported each other. Um, at the time, like one of the cool things Eleanor did, Eleanor did so many cool things, but one of the really cool things at the time, only men reporters were allowed to cover the, the president's um, press uh, briefings. And uh, so Eleanor decided that she would start holding press briefings for uh, as, as the first lady, but that she would only allow female reporters to cover her press briefings, which resulted in all these media outlets having to hire women reporters. So um, she really, you know, kind of leveraged her power to create a lot of change, um, which was super, super inspiring. You tell us um, on page 159 that only some publications have acknowledged Eleanor and Lorena's relationship and you mentioned Empty Without You as one that does, that it's also briefly mentioned in Gay America, and that Weiss and Cook uh, has said that it wasn't a simple friendship, and you have a quote from her uh, stating her feelings about it. You also ask us to think about some of the things that Eleanor championed and how if we see the fullness of her and who she loved and how she loved, we might better understand why she cared about marginalized people and the things that mattered to her and how then we see that through her policies. Absolutely. That was the most exciting thing to me. So most of the, most of the research I was doing for this book, I mean, and I spent years doing it. Um, I just kept thinking what interesting footnotes about history how how fascinating that Abraham Lincoln was in love with another man and how interesting that Eleanor Roosevelt was in love with another woman. But I just kept thinking, well, it's, a, it's an interesting footnote on history, like asterisks, right? Like, oh, they did these incredible things. And oh, by the way, they were also, you know, men who love men, women who love women, people who loved outside, um, without regard to gender and people who lived outside the gender binary. How interesting. But then it actually... The epiphany for me happened when I was reading the letters between Gandhi and um, Herman Kallenbach. Uh, and uh, we'll go off on a little tangent and then we'll circle back to Eleanor. Um, so so Mahatma Gandhi, uh, you know, Mohandas Gandhi, he uh, was married to a woman, Kasturba. They were married as children. Um, they had four 
uh, sons together. Uh, but the love of his life was clearly not his wife, Kasturba. It was this German Jewish architect whose name was Hermann Kallenbach. And in fact, um, they, referred to, they referred to themselves as soulmates. Um, and when it was included in a book for adults, um, Joseph Lullibeld's Great Soul, uh, this giant biography on, on Gandhi, um, that book ended up being banned in a couple of areas of India um, because it included two pages of discussion about the relationship between um, Gandhi and, and Kallenbach. And, but that ended up in, it, because of that, it ended up in the New York Times and I ended up finding it, went and read the letters. And then actually all of Gandhi's writings are, are, are available for free online for anybody to read um, through, I believe, the Gandhi Trust. And so I just started to read the letters. And I don't know, there's more than 200 letters back and forth between these two men. And there was this moment where, you know, they, there was Gandhi studied as a, as a lawyer and wrote up a love contract between them where they're pledging, um, I want to get the quote right, but I believe it was... Uh, love hold on it was like love such love as the world has never seen um here it is um and then uh there's another letter in you know from 1914 um you know we are gandhi's writing to kallenbach saying we are so indivisible one soul in two bodies and um oh here's that here's that quote on page 70 um the consideration uh, for all the above tasks imposed by Lower House on himself, uh, they had nicknames for each other, Lower House and Upper House, is more love and yet more love between the two houses, such love as they hope the world has not seen. So it's like a love contract between them. It was just so amazing. But, you know, Gandhi had this huge breakthrough. In 1911, um, Gandhi published um, this let people's religions be different. You worship a being, a single entity as Allah, and another adores him as Kuda. I worship him as Ishwar. How does anyone stand to lose? You worship facing one way and I worship facing the other. Why should I become your enemy for that reason? We all belong to the human race. We all wear the same skin. We hail from the same land. When the facts are as simple as that, it will be nothing but folly and short-sightedness to bear implacable enmity toward one another. And when I read that, and, you know, that's one of the things that Gandhi's so famous for, right? This like huge breakthrough in, in, in the history of, of humanity, this like that, that we are, it sh our religions shouldn't keep us separate, that, that we can, we should not be enemies with each other because we have, we, we have different ways of praying to, you know, this idea of an almighty that maybe is the same across all the religions. Like the fact that Gandhi was in love with this Jewish man, like that cannot have not influenced this, I think. Um, sorry for the double negative, but I do feel like it it probably had a lot to do with this, with Gandhi being the amazing person that he was, with him having the revelations that he did. Um, it, it really suddenly started to make a lot more sense. And then with Eleanor, after Franklin died, and um, she was, she went to the UN basically as a kind of special ambassador, and she led the fight at the United Nations for the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And you think, 
I think about the fact that, you know, she was in love with this other woman for decades. And, you know, it's been documented that they had friends that were female couples. And I think that, like, maybe that helped shape who she was and what she did and why she had this empathy. And then you go back to Lincoln and you're like, okay, well, certainly not a perfect person, but maybe the fact that he was in love with this other guy, could that have maybe shaped his understanding and empathy towards, you know, people who were truly othered at that time and, and, and totally disenfranchised, like people who were being, who were enslaved. Like it just, history suddenly starts to make a whole lot more sense when we take in the, the bigger picture of who these people were. And a lot of times that was who they loved. The book opens with a quote that is particularly striking given the extraordinary rise in book bans that are happening during the time of this taping. It opens with a quote from Judy Grand, and it says, In 1961, when I was 21, I went to a library in Washington, D.C. to read about homosexuals and lesbians, to investigate, explore, compare opinions, learn who I might be, what others thought of me, who my peers were and had been. The books on such subject, I was told by indignant, terrified librarians unable to say aloud the word homosexual, were locked away. And it goes on to talk about a wire cage they were kept in. Lee, is your book banned anywhere? Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, it's been it's been called out on these sort of un- unfortunate lists in um, Texas, in uh, I believe Tennessee. Uh, it's on some online lists. Um, I the one that made me perhaps roll my eyes the most was this is a list of obscene books. I haven't read any of them. And then mine was listed among the the 20 or so listed. Um, I just, yeah. And and it's interesting because the the first reaction people have when they hear that, you know, no way they were gay has has been challenged and banned is, hey, congratulations. You must be selling a whole lot of books. I'm like, well, well, I guess thank you. But actually, that's not how it works for the majority of books that end up on these lists. Um, Two things happen. Uh, well, first of all, I think for the top 10 most banned books, um, the ones that are on the ALA's list, uh, I think those books probably do see a bump in sales. And I think that that probably is helpful. But for the vast majority, and especially when they're releasing lists of 800 plus books, um, there's a chilling effect. It means that a librarian in a school, a teacher, um, have to suddenly think twice about whether they're going to, even if they think that the book would be helpful for their their young patrons, they have to suddenly be like, is this worth my risking my job? Is this worth a giant fight with the school board? Um, so it's not just, the impact isn't just on on my book. It's, it's a chilling effect across all the books that they carry. And that's actually the intent of the book banning. And the Washington Post came out with some fascinating reporting recently that they did an analysis of, um, I think it was 2000 plus uh, book challenges. Uh, I think it was across 32 states. And they found that 11 individual people were behind more than 60% of the challenges. 
So rather than it being a, you know, a groundswell of, you know, conservative, you know, sentiment in our country, it is actually a very calculated political manipulation by a very small group of people to use this as sort of a wedge issue in a political way um, and to really silence and try to kind of force queer people back in the closet. And it's so interesting because most people at this point have smartphones. So it's not like you're, it's not like kids are not going to be able to know that queer people exist or, or black people exist, right? Like you're not going to push that back into the closet. So they're targeting books because books are sort of empathy machines I think that, you know, I, you read a book and you kind of get a sense of either if it's a reflection of yourself or it's a, a, a way to see the sort of shared humanity of someone that on the, on the outside may seem very different than you. And I think that that sort of, that's the mechanism by which we start to live in a pluralistic community society where we care about each other, even if we are different. And we, you know, I think the definition of community has been really skewed. I mean, community should be that we can be different and still live together in harmony. And that's kind of, I mean, I guess that's the word harmony is really perfect because harmony doesn't mean we're all singing the same note. Harmony means we're singing notes that together make up, you know, are synergistic. They're, they're more beautiful because they are different. And I feel like that's, that's where we want to get to, right? I mean, a, a lot of times with with diversity, there's this sort of like, well, we should be teaching tolerance. And I think tolerance is a very low bar. And I think that it would be much better if we could get to where we're celebrating our, our differences. Yeah, I don't want to be tolerated. Yeah, exactly. It's... Um, it sounds, it sounds, I mean, I guess better tolerated than, than, you know, pilloried, but, um, I'd rather we get like, if we're going to set our goals, let's set our high, let's set goals higher. <laughs> let's set our goals to actually like acknowledging our differences and in, in a, in a appreciative way to being grateful for our differences. You know, it's so funny. We're so quick to look at nature and be like, Look at the incredible variety and diversity of flowers. There's so many beautiful kinds of flowers and so many colors, and we celebrate that. And when it comes to people, we're like, nope, you get two choices. You spoke earlier about different gatekeepers disrupting your work. You had a publishing contract and your work was underway, and it's something that writers dream about and celebrate, and then it was canceled for things completely outside your control. You wanted to publish your novel and you couldn't get a publisher for it. So you, you found an alternative means you released it. Then you released it through a podcast. People can hear all the chapters podcast by podcast episode. You also set up a website and created direct access to your documents and your information. It's a fantastic website. It's a great example of what digital humanities is about what public history projects are. How did you go about creating the website? Oh, thanks. Yeah. So, um, so I started and my website's called, uh, I'm here. I'm queer. What the hell do I read? Which is a variation on sort of a queer pride chant that, uh, happened in sort of the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, we're here, get, we're queer, get used to it. Um, so when I, there was this very beautiful book for kids by Todd Parr 
called The Family Book. And in it is, it's very cartoon style. And in it, it's sort of like, you know, one page says, some families look the same. And it's a, a drawing of like four dogs that are all the same, you know, they all look very similar. And then you turn the, the next page says, some families look different. And it's a tree filled with all different kinds of animals. Um, and then you turn the page and some families adopt children. And it's a picture of a bunch of ducks and on the back of one of the ducks is a penguin. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, some families have two moms or two dads and literally like two female smiling faces, two male smiling faces uh, and on and on. And there was a review online on one of the big online retailers. And it basically said, if you tear out the page with two moms and two dads, then you have a lovely book on diversity. And it kind of stopped my heart there for a moment. Like I was so upset because I thought, well, first of all, way, way to miss the entire point about diversity. But the other thing was that it was just such a hateful, nasty comment. And I thought, man, I, this is, I, there has to be a safe place online for people to find out about what are the books for kids and teens with queer content. And there really wasn't anything at that time. So in 2007, I started um, at the time, it was just a blog, and um, it, it was called I'm Here, I'm Queer, What the Hell Do I Read? It's The, the URL has always been my name, leewind.org. Lee and I just started talking about the books that existed. Um, and I, I started out really trying to be just, just to not make it Lee's book list, but make it more about like, these are the books that exist. And I, at the time, I figured, I estimated there were about 30 books um, and then it started to grow. It became a place where I could talk about stuff that was really upsetting to me and that I wanted teens to know about. And over time, it just, it just started to grow into, um, you know, a place to talk about culture, to talk about, um, the things that I wished people would pay more attention to about, um, sort of these built-in moments of homophobia in our culture, um, and, and these moments of history that were just sort of like astonishing for me to, to come upon. And, and then it just sort of built, started to build momentum and it got a lot of people reading it, a lot of um, uh, librarians and teachers and queer teens and their allies. And um, yeah, I've been doing it for uh, quite a long time now. And, um, and then it shifted once I started to have my own books published. And uh, I the website changed a little bit in the design. Um, and then one of the cool things is that like the Lincoln chapter with all the evidence of Abraham Lincoln loving another man is actually available as a free PDF download off of my website. Because in response to the, all the book banning and particularly, you know, no way they were gay getting banned, I thought, well, how do I, what can I do? You know, what do I have the power to do? And as I said, with Queer as a $5 Bill, I, I crowdfunded that. So I'm the publisher of Queer as a $5 Bill. And I also, you know, paid to have a company and, and narrator create a beautiful audiobook of it. And I thought, hmm, you know what? What if I take that, that audiobook? And like you said, I, I made it a podcast. And so... Um, Queers a $5 Bill, the podcast is my way around the book banners. It's my way of just putting the entire novel out there um, for anybody to listen to. And in particular, hopefully for queer teens and their allies to listen to, because I think it's really amazing. And, I, and, and in that time machine kind of way, I wish I could go back and tell my 
in my 13 year old self. Um, it's the, the age for that book is 13 because there's a lot of intense homophobia that the main character experiences. Um, and I want, I think it really is sort of like, I mean, for me, I it would have been a little intense at 11. Um, but 13, I would have been like, yeah, that, that was the pocket. And, um, so it's, it's like, how do I, how do I leverage my tools? Right? Like, how do I go around these sort of gatekeepers? Um, and if, if librarians are afraid to have my book there, then what else can I do to get the information out there? Because it really is about empowering, empowering young people to know, and adults too. I mean, we all have our young person inside us. And I know that a lot of what I'm writing is very healing for me uh, internally, because it's like, I'm giving myself what I never had and what, what would have been so impactful if I had had it. So, um, yeah, that's sort of like trying to use all the resources at my disposal and like, what are the levers I can pull? What, what do I control? And, um, yeah, and podcasts are really cool. I mean, your podcast is amazing. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you for that. You have more books coming out. Can we, um, anticipate the website will have more on it too? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really excited, uh, about, well, I'm excited about all of them, but it's funny because uh, because of the pandemic, uh, some books uh, got delayed in their production schedules. And so I actually have three books coming out in 2023, 2024, excuse me. Um, so it was sort of like I had two books come out in 2021 and then uh, a, a kind of like a, a breath <laughs> and now three books coming out. The, um, the companion book in the series, The Queer History Project, uh, the companion book to No Way They Were Gay is going to be coming out in the spring of 2024. And it's called The Gender Binary is a Big Lie. And I'm really excited about that because it really delves into how did we come up with this weird idea that there are only two possible options for gender when, when clearly there are so many other cultures that see gender differently than we do. And even within our culture, there are so many people that live outside the gender binary um, and not just now, but you know, throughout time and around our world. And I thought that that was a super fascinating thing to dive into. And so much of what I'm trying to continue to do is like, like I'm not, it's not my telling everybody what happened in history. It's really, I'm trying to hold space for the voices of people from history and let them speak directly to the readers and kind of like, I, I don't want to replicate the, the mistakes of previous historians, but who basically paraphrased everything and kind of inserted all their own bias. I want to be clear about what's who I am and what my what my take is, but I really want to put forth the primary sources and let people read it themselves and like we were talking about make their own call. Like Anne Lamont wrote this beautiful book about writing called Bird by Bird and in it she has a really resonant quote for me about how lighthouses don't run all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there and they shine. And I really love that because I think that a lot of what I do, people could get very like upset about, like, like they could, it's, I, I'm not out here trying to convince everybody in the world that I'm right and they're wrong about history. What I'm trying to do is be like, wow, I discovered this really cool stuff. I'm going to shine a light on it. And then if you're interested, come on over to the light and check it out. 
And if you're not interested, that's okay. I can't, I can't be emotionally invested in how, what people are taking away. My job is to put it out as best as I can to sort of, to shine, to be the lighthouse and to let go of how people are going to determine for themselves what, what their own interpretation of the history of the historical materials are. Um, and I think that that's very empowering for, for everybody. Like, I don't need to convince people about, you know, William Shakespeare writing 126 love sonnets to another man means that William Shakespeare was it, by like, I don't need, I, that's what, that's my interpretation, but like, read the sonnets. It's incredible. And, you know, and, and let's acknowledge that for over 150 years, the version of the sonnets were kind of altered that the world knew to make it appear that Shakespeare had written all of the 150 some sonnets to a woman. Um, but that's not how they were originally published or originally written. And that is important for us to know. Like there've been all these tricky tricks that, um, as I put the, in, in the book, in the way they were gay, that have tried to like hide this, the queer, the queer truth of history. And let's expose that and let's kind of get behind that and let's listen to the people talk themselves. Um, just because I'm obsessed with it, like I'm going to just read the opening lines of one of Shakespeare's sonnets. It's um, sonnet 144. Two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits do suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worser spirit, a woman colored ill. Like he's very clear that he was in love with a man and in love with a woman who didn't appear to be his wife. And that's very exciting. I mean, and there are certainly historians that don't think that the sonnets are autobiographical at all. And they think that they're just pure fantasy. And that is a totally okay interpretation. It's not my interpretation, but read the sonnets. It's incredible. You're inviting us back into the nuance. And in the nuance, we can be more human. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's also this thing that like we want, I don't know, we, but like there's this idea that people in history should should be very one thing or the other. It's a very binary way of thinking. And it goes back to the, the gender binary too, but this idea that like everybody's always, you know, either a hero or a villain. Um, and people are really fascinating and complex. And I think if we can acknowledge that complexity, then I think then young people will know it's okay for them to be complex and for them to not be perfect and for them to, to be multi-layered and multifaceted. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was kind of a racist. I mean, you know, yes, he, he freed the enslaved people, but he also had this plan at one point to send all the black people back to Africa. Um, like, and he didn't argue for equality. Um, I mean, he didn't, he didn't, it was interesting. He was sort of like, they're not our, they're not our mental equals, but um, they should be, they should be able to earn the fruit of their own labor. Um, it was, he was walking a very delicate line um, politically. It's just so interesting. There was one character that I feature in No Way They Were Gay, who's called the Lieutenant Nun. And this was a person who was assigned female at birth, was raised in a convent at age 16, escaped from the convent, basically transformed their, get their, their women's garb into men's clothing, um, like sewed a pair of pants from the sort of the, the, the large 
flowing cloth, um, cut their own hair, and then made their way to Central America as a man, as a soldier, and kind of embodied the most toxic masculine traits of uh, Spanish men at that time. And, you know, was, you know, seduced women and, you know, engaged in battles and was promoted on the battlefield for valor and then ended up murdering a couple of people in brawls. And then when he, when um, the, this person who went by the name of the Lieutenant Nunn uh, later in their life, when, when they were um, basically captured for the murder of one of these people, um, they confessed that they actually had been born a woman and they, it was a gigantic sort of like scandal of the time. And I don't know why I said scandal with an accent. Uh, it wasn't Spanish either. <laughs> and, um, and they became kind of world famous. And they wrote a sort of autobiography and that I quote pretty extensively from in the book. And it was, um, they even got a special dispensation from the Pope to continue to dress as a man when it was pretty much against uh, church rules and, and, and the law at the time. And it was just, they became a celebrity uh, and they weren't a nice person, but it is fascinating to know about them existing. You know, just like it's fascinating to know that there was a Pharaoh in ancient Egypt that, you know, Hatshepsut that ruled for 22 years. And over the course of that time, transitioned how they presented themselves from being a, uh, having a woman's body to sort of an in-between gender to having a male body. And, you know, a lot of what I do is like kind of go to the library and get these books by adult, you know, for adults. And I kind of dive into them and I kind of find out these amazing, these amazing facts. And I try to like present them to kids and get them more excited. So then they, they'll go and read the full, you know, adult history books about these people. But like, I think that there's this idea that like all this gender, um, fluidity is new in that, you know, in our parents' time and our grandparents' time, certainly people, you know, weren't gender fluid or, you know, they didn't change their, their, their presentation of gender. And it's just not true. I mean, more thousands of years ago, Hatshepsut did it. And I think that that's very liberating and very empowering for, for young people today, especially those that, who are gender nonconforming. In the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you, what do you hope listeners take away? I really hope they realize that history is not what happened. History is the stories of what happened as told to you by the people who are in power. And that is a really, really important distinction. And that if you want to dig into it, you can find the other stories of history. And that that really is a liberation for all of us. Thank you so much for being here today, Lee Wynn, and sharing with us from No Way They Were Gay and your other projects. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to Academic Life. Please join us again.